Welcome everybody, glad you could join us. The theme today is on energy transition. Energy transition is well underway. Uh, renewables are becoming more cost effective and prevalent. And what we're seeing also is green hydrogen coming in as part of this transition and options in terms of how it will enter that transition still being explored, but potential benefits that could make it a key part of the future energy mix. By way of introduction, I'm your host for today, Richard Lappin. I'm Power Generation Technical Director at WSP in the Middle East, and I'm delighted to be joined by Mike Theobald, Energy Transition Director at WSP UK. Mike, if you want to say hello to everyone. Yeah, good day to everybody, and I'm glad to be a part of this podcast. Great, great. So let's get into it. Uh, in, in this episode uh, of our Anticipate podcast, we'll discuss implications for the current energy transition, explore whether green hydrogen is going to be a major part of a more sustainable future energy mix and some of the issues that centre around that. Uh, Mike, as, as Director for Energy Transition in the UK, you've obviously and undoubtedly seen the progressive shift towards renewables over the last 10 years. From a UK perspective, what form is this transition taking and what do you see as the driver or drivers behind the transition? We've got a long way to go still, and, and we've already come a considerable way in certain people's minds and, you know, and, and to a certain extent behaviours. The energy transition really started you know, quite a few years ago. Was, you know, we had a predominance of coal-fired power stations and oil-fired power stations. Now, they, they've largely been removed from the, uh, the energy mix. You know, I think with the latest, you know, the latest auctions, we're seeing the coal-fired power stations really having their last gasp. We've still got a long way to go, but we're we're already you know we're setting out our plans. It started in the UK from a UK perspective, really like lots of other areas with onshore wind um, and solar. The onshore wind sector is you know is still there and it's still quite a lot happening, but the the big big growth areas now are are moving towards offshore wind. But the the, the key thing for the you know the tra- the energy transition is it's going to mean uh, very different things to many regions. So each region will have their own way. Of maximising their own resources and availability of, uh, of renewable power and renewable energy, that makes best sense to their economy. So you can't really look at UK and I uh, as the as a model for everywhere. The Middle East will have a very different model for reaching their targets as well. Yeah, and presumably the uh, the choice of the form of renewable energy is going to be dependent on prevailing meteorological conditions, access to technology. But what role might uh, existing infrastructure play? And what are other influences that might drive the technology choice? Going back uh, sort of over the last few centuries, really, the uh, you know, industrial revolution, uh, and that, that took effect over, you know, over many decades. What we're seeing here is an energy revolution, and it's being driven by the climate uh, that we're, we're seeing in front of us, driving the, the need to, uh, to move very rapidly. From, a, from an existing infrastructure perspective, we have to use that existing infrastructure as, as best we possibly can. You know, there's already a lot of carbon sunk into that in existing infrastructure. So it, the way that I tend to think about this is that if, if we can make use of that existing infrastructure in the best way possible, then um, we are going to inherently save carbon. In, in doing so, if we look at the the hydrogen cycle, and you know it's obviously in the ascendancy at the moment, that is going to need a huge amount of infrastructure, both in generating hydrogen and distributing hydrogen to the off takers, and that may make perfect sense in some some areas uh, for some industries and some off take sectors, but in others it may make less sense. 
in doing so. If we focus on the blue hydrogen, for instance, there's the potential there with the blue hydrogen cycle to, to reuse a significant amount of the existing infrastructure. We've got gas pipelines in place, and, albeit, and a lot of the gas pipelines at the, at the, the grid scale have been built with hydrogen in mind for, for quite some time. But it's when we get further out into the uh, the non-industrial areas where we're going to really struggle with, with hydrogen distribution. For some areas, using existing infrastructure, infrastructure such as the, the gas pipelines and converting gas pipelines where necessary to, to be able to handle gas is, is going to be the sensible move. It's, it's going to be a, lot, a much more, even within the UK, it's going to be much more of a regionalised cluster approach to reuse of, it, of existing infrastructure. Hydrogen as well as an energy storage and energy transport tool is not going to be as an efficient way forwards for some sectors and some offtakes than, than others. If we look at using green hydrogen for transport, it has to go through quite a lot of con- conversion processes to, you know, to, get to, the, to get to the transport. If we use the excess wind or we use excess wind power, wind power to generate hydrogen through the use of electrolysis, we're, we're converting from ele- uh, electricity to, uh, to hydrogen, then we have to transport that hydrogen to, the, you know, to a, a, a regional uh, storage facility, whether that's small or large. It goes into a fuel cell or, and that fuel cell then converts it back into electricity, which then is used for the electric vehicle. So there's, there's quite a lot of uh, inefficient energy transfer processes in place to allow that to happen. Which may not be the most, which may not be the most effective use for, for hydrogen. So it's it's quite a complex issue. I think what we we have to do is we have to take the view where is the original energy coming from, whether it's offshore wind, onshore wind, solar, and how can we best use that energy for the offtake requirements, whether that's EVs, whether it's for industrial heating, whether it's for domestic heating, or for power generation, or further power generation. Okay, and what what about the uh, the grid infrastructure? I mean, I presume, but just my view, and I'd like to see uh, hear your view. I presume that's what what's going to be necessary in the future because you're going to have a, a raft of spinning reserve required. Is a more integrated grid structures in countries whereby maybe to date those the the grid structures are connected, but connected with minimal capacity transfer. Uh, how do you see that? Energy trading is definitely going to play an increasingly important part of neighbouring regions' energy mix. There's a lot of discussion about taking solar power from one region via interconnectors and transporting it to the to the next. A lot of there's a lot of balancing needed. There's a lot of peak and troughs to fill. But the more disperse uh, the areas are, the more chance there are, there is for regions that aren't necessarily sunny at a particular point in time can benefit for, through that interconnectivity with other regions and it's the same for uh, things like um, offshore wind you know there has been a big build out of offshore wind uh, in the uh, in the north sea uh, around the uk the difficulty with that and which is why we're now seeing offshore wind develop into much wider geographic areas is that you know when it's um, when it's less windy in the north sea probably going to be windier elsewhere so the more you can geographically separate the renewable sources and use connectivity to transfer energy around and, and hence energy trading and energy transfer, the more available energy will be to a greater area and probably lessen the, the need to have energy storage. As an interim, energy storage is the, is the way we have to go because it's going to take a long time to build out all of that new infrastructure to support that. So 
things like you know conventional battery storage, pump storage, these technologies will need to be developed to support the uh, you know the next ten years of of uh, renewable generation. And in in terms of storage, is it going to be uh, fuel cell? I mean, uh, you mentioned the conventional sort of pump storage that traditionally supported um, nuclear power generation. But in the future, are we going to see more fuel cell battery storage, or what? what what's the form of storage for the future? I think it's going to be quite complex and uh, and varied. Uh, you know, we're, you know, it was very easy in the more recent past when you know power generation was uh, predicated on you know the extractive industries of of oil and gas uh, for power. We can pretty much turn things on and turns them off at you know, at, at will. We're no longer in that zone. Therefore, we're going to have to take a much more deeper dive. We're going to have to um, evaluate um, what type of storage is is probably the most beneficial for even regions within the UK and regions within other parts of you know countries. Because what will make sense, say, for the north of the UK will not make sense for south of the UK. And likewise, for, that's going to be the same for, for lots of other regions. Um, we're seeing a huge growth in, you know, traditional battery storage. I think the chemistry is probably going to change. You know, there has been a, a big ramp up uh, based upon lithium-ion technology, but that may not be the, the most prevalent battery chemistry uh, emerging over the next uh, few years. Battery chemistry technology is evolving extremely quickly, and so the the ability to uh, to store uh, energy per unit is reducing in size. One of the conundrums with battery storage is that what may be good for our mobile phones may not be the may not be good for you know grid scale battery storage in terms of chemistry. We've got very different drivers. In a mobile phone you need to have a, a battery a battery that would be light and compact. Whereas if you you know you've got a battery storage system on a industrial zone, being uh, light and compact is not necessarily the key driver. The, the world will respond to the, or the, the, the value chain will respond to the emerging technologies. And presumably longevity plays a, a huge role in all of that. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, just going back uh, um, a second to uh, hydrogen, you, you mentioned um, hydrogen. What we're seeing, certainly in the Middle East, is we're seeing a trend towards uh, export of um, hydrogen-related products such as uh, ammonia. How do you actually see that? Because you, you mentioned in terms of moving hydrogen around, you need to make a number of conversions. And it just seems to be, again, that you're, you know, you've got electrolysis, you've got the, uh, the conversion to um, ammonia, and then you've got to take the hydrogen out of the ammonia wherever it's being dispatched to. In between time, you've got the need to store and you've got the issues with regard to logistics in terms of shipping. Just seems um, uh, an expensive process. Well, I think anything to do with hydrogen is not going to be around the same cost as what we've typically seen energy to cost. You know, we need to reset our expectations on what the the value of of, of energy actually is. Whereas before, we moved into a, a completely different paradigm. Now, we were able to use the you know the atmosphere as a you know as, as generally a trash can uh, for for CO two and other emissions. You know, we're now valuing that that our environment. We're now valuing our our atmosphere, which you know we all breathe, to uh, to have a value in itself. And we've we've chosen because the climate is forcing us to choose, to to not uh, discharge into into the atmosphere, to any to any level uh, near 
where we have done in the past. And therefore, there's a cost associated with that. So, you know, if when we when we look at the terms of, you know, inefficiencies and it's very costly and it's, it's cost that we've been used to predicating on the free use of our atmosphere to absorb what is actually quite a quite a costly process to tackle. I think generally, unfortunately, we are going to have to get used to much higher energy costs because the ease of access to energy for whatever purpose and whatever offtake is going to uh, be less. So in other words, it's going, to, it's going to be harder for us to gain access to that energy for what, our, what we need to use the energy for. And, and that is going to mean a cost. Although hydrogen is in the ascendancy, it is not going to be without its uh, without its problems. It's not going to be it's not going to be without the inefficiencies. But it might just be that's what we have to do to get us to the place we need to be at. Mm. I see. See also that um, a move towards trying to uh, have bus fleets, for example, run on hydrogen. Um, and the, again, the question that surfaces to me is: Is hydrogen really going to play a role in the future transport energy demand or or basically have electric vehicles already taken and stepped into that spotlight it's very hard to to hedge against batteries now being uh, able to cement their position in the in the transport infrastructure a lot of it's going to be down to how fast the different battery chemistries will go beyond proof of concept to a scalable a scalable solution the move towards solid state batteries for instance is expecting to triple quadruple the energy storage capacity of batteries that you know you recognize in any electric vehicle today so you can either go four times longer or you can have a battery that's four times smaller now these are these are things that are on you know the the moving from lab scale into early stage uh, ramp up scale uh, technologies i wouldn't be surprised in two or three years we'll see uh, a significant volume of solid state batteries starting to move into the market Whereas hydrogen is in many ways a mature technology, we know that any given size of electrolyzer, you'll get uh, so much hydrogen out of it. Okay, there may be some improvement in catalysts and and things like that, but the development of the of the hydrogen technology is is well known, and um, it comes with a, you know, I think the the efficiencies are going to be uh, more hard fought for. It's good to see that we have been evaluating and, and rolling out hydrogen into into many def- different areas um, and some of those will still uh, you know, going back to the theme that you know it's not going to be a, um, a single answer or it's going to be quite a complex answer to get us to where we need to get to uh, hydrogen will still have its its part to play so although you know hydrogen may not make it to a, a large embedded state within the transport infrastructure it will have its its place to play in industrial sectors that require a lot of heat. I'm thinking of the um, steel industry that um, will you know, does have a high heat demand, and I can see there being a benefit to switch from gas to to a hydrogen fuel source for those industries uh, because it makes much better sense. And um, with regard to the general shift to renewables, obviously that you mentioned earlier, it's going to have some. Uh, impact on on energy prices and we're going to get used to paying more for energy potentially are there any mitigants in in that regard or is that just is it just going to be the only mitigant going to be the scale at which they're uh, they're introduced or or is there anything else that can be done to minimize pricing 
ultimately, you know, the price of energy is going to always trickle down to, you know, the consumer. Uh, because it's the consumer that the, the consumer that needs the you know needs the energy. Now, you now the governments can uh, subsidise to a certain level, but ultimately that that subsidy needs to uh, come from somewhere. In in terms of you know the cost of energy increasing, yes, it is going to be more costly for energy over the sort of ten to fifteen year period. But the the expectation is once we have and it's mainly due to building all this additional infrastructure that you know we. Uh, um, we're going to have to build to, to meet to meet our targets. There is an expectation that once that build out of infrastructure becomes mature, and there's a you know the energy mix is has moved to a, uh, a much higher level of uh, renewable energy, the energy prices will start to uh, come down again. It's going to take it's going to take quite a while to uh, to see that. That starting to that start to play out in in consumers and in industrial sort of energy bills. Okay, and from a future perspective, do you actually see renewables being the majority component in um, in uh, the energy generation mix for countries, or is it is it going to still be a sort of twenty to thirty percent niche? I fully anticipate that the end point for the energy transition will be predominantly renewable based or at least an abated place so that we where we do have uh, co2 emitting technologies that the co2 is abated by carbon capture but it's going to be very different um you know the needs of africa are very different to the the needs of the uk which are very different to the needs of the middle east and the the ability for those regions to adopt certain technologies is going to be very different as well you know the 20 year uh, outlook we are we are still going to see gas play a significant part of the energy mix globally we are anticipating for that the gas fired uh, power stations and and other users of gas to go through co2 abatement via carbon capture and sequestration so that the effect the net effect of that energy or that power generation will be similar to a renewable source just in, in terms of that uh, okay that that um, obviously if abatement comes in and it's uh, as clean as a renewable uh, generator for want of a better characterization then of course you'd expect that um, production of, um, of gas turbines etc will still continue but are we going to see in that regard given that in order to consider a gas turbine you need to put a whole raft of abatement on the back end of it and and there's a cost associated with that 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 itself will mean that the fossil fired generation from gas becomes then relatively small component of a generation mix yeah, that, so you know we're we're starting to talk about cost again, <laughs> and uh, and and you know the you know we we have to we cannot ignore what we have been ignoring for decades, ever since the industrial revolution that um, we can't we can't ignore the cost of of uh, of the atmosphere, but you know there are other technologies coming on. So you know we we have been working with a um, uh, rivers substantially over the last uh, uh, eight years you know as one example of of a technology where you'll actually get inherent co2 cap co2 capture within the process for for lower capital cost so i think you know the there are more answers out there than carrying on with the gas-fired 
power generation and uh, and building a carbon capture facility next to it for their non-wood CO2 pipeline out to a sequestration zone. There, there are more technologies. Equally, that was one. That's one developing te- technology built on the alum for vet cycle. Similarly, uh, nuclear fusion is another technology that is rapidly advancing. It has been, you know, forever. It's been 15 years away or 20 years away. You know, we're now moving to a position where, you know, we have proof of concept and early stage, you know, pilot plants expected to uh, be the the final step before commercial, commercially sized facilities. I was going to say, I, I remember being in a conversation 20 years ago with Stephen King, and uh, he was saying at the time that fusion uh, energy was 40 years away. And that, that was about 20 <laughs> years ago. So yeah. <laughs> the time frame well, uh, doesn't seem to change, but I never see the yeah. technology emerging. Yeah. But we now, we've now got very well-funded campaigns with pilot plants that are being built in even in the UK and Cullum that are showing, and there's very different concepts, of course, being explored in this, but it's, there's been a, a huge ramp up in, in uh, expectation, also achievements in the last two years for nuclear fusion. And the real expectation is this would be now just, we're not talking about 15 to 20 years away, we're talking about two years away before we start to, we start to see uh, funding starting, uh, starting to flow into commercially sized facilities. Great. Uh, Mike, thanks very much for the uh, podcast today. I really enjoyed the chat. To our listeners, thanks for listening all the way through. Please leave a comment if today's discussion sparked your interest or if there are any burning issues that you think we didn't address during our discussions. And don't forget to join us two weeks hence for the next podcast. Thank you very much.